and welcome to Heineken Rugby Weekly with the 42. My name's Ryan Bailey, standing in for Gavin Casey. This week, we are joined in studio by former Leicester and Munster back, Johnny Murphy. Johnny, welcome to the studio. Cheers, thanks for having me, guys. And of course, Murray Kinsella, as always. Murray, how's things? Yeah, all good, Ryan. How are you? Yeah, good. Enjoy the weekend's rugby. We're into the thick of it now. Yeah, I did. Really enjoyed it. Um, some really good Irish performances. I think Munster did really well to get those uh, two points away from home. And now, pretty exciting weekend. I'm off to France for a kind of double header with Ulster and Leinster away. So yeah, really exciting time of the year. Yeah, so Gav's off gallivanting in Boston, following Katie Taylor and you're off. To, to sunny France now for the weekend as well yeah it's a tough life tough. <laughs> it certainly is okay let's get into I suppose the take of it um, last week obviously round one action a lot of as you say provinces good weekend for them but just the bands the retrospective bands that have kind of come out of the, the first week of, of European action 17 weeks in total and post for five players um, what did you kind of make of Jerome Kano is obviously the big one has ramifications for Leinster's trip to Toulouse on Sunday he's been banned for five weeks what what did you kind of make of the incident was it the right decision in, in retrospect yeah it's been a really interesting couple of days with, with, with those old decisions 17 weeks of bans in total retrospectively as, as you say it, it's really interesting that this is kind of the trend in the game now I think we're going to see this for a while as referees and authorities try and kind of clamp these things out of the game the Kano one for me I thought it was a red card when it happened I thought there was contact onto Jamie Roberts' chin um, and the fact that he went off uh, for the HIA and clearly concussed uh, says it all. That's why they're trying to clamp it out of the game. Like, I do have some sympathy for Jerome Kano because, you know, he's put himself in a really good position to make a really dominant tackle there um, and it's a matter of centimetres, inches in terms of slipping onto the jaw there. But having said that, I do think he's in a good enough position to drop just a little bit lower Um and I don't know, Johnny, what do you think? Like, is it a, There's a bit of coaching in there as well. It's it's, it's players getting used to that um, decision and maybe just dropping slightly lower. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we were speaking before we started. I, I think there's an onus on everyone involved in this. Um, you know, referees, disciplinary committees, uh, players, coaches. And, you know, I think the authorities, you know, around rule changes, you know, if you want to do something like this, just bring it, bring in a rule bring it into to nipple height, keep it down lower and, and just blanket it. And then it forces everyone to um you know, to tackle a, a certain way. You know, there, he if you look at Kano in terms of if you freeze frame it and slowly go through it, he gets in a really, really good position. If he drops his height small uh, a tiny bit lower, it's a it's a brilliant shot. And you know, um you know, coaching kids from, you know, under eights the whole way up, you know, you're teaching kids to step and sink. And, you know, if you can, if that filters down the whole way through, then kids aren't going to be trying to do the, do a high shot or do the, because this is what's seen at the weekend. And I, I just think there needs to be a bit more responsibility taken from everyone across the board. Um there also is an issue, I think, with ball carriers. Um, you know, do they have a responsibility to the tackler as well, given that it's a collision sport? You know, there are there is going to be a lot of guys who, who actually step into a contact when they're ball carrying because they're trying to brace themselves. So there is kind of, there is, there's a grey area at the moment that's creating a huge amount of issues across the board. And I think the bans, as you say, the rest, r- retrospective bans, you know, show that and and there's a lot of frustration out there across all levels between coaches players referees you know like you're kind of hanging out referees uh, out to dry as well in terms of you know the weekend Kano gets a yellow card it's back it's actually should have been a red and you know he gets a, a, a five week ban on top of it so you know I think you know Brace is he's kind of 
thrown yeah, out there, you yeah. know, and and it's a very tough one to, to to balance, you know. Yeah, well, I mean that says it all though that the referees are also struggling with this. Like you look at these, was it five bands? Um, and the only one that was red carded was by Joy Neville for the Perpignan prop, uh, Manu Leotua, um, for that leading forearm. Um, and the reaction on the pitch was incredulous. You, you're, I can't believe you're giving me a red card for this. I've tried to fend him off. There was contact with the forearm into the neck, and that's a massive area now um, that's really being clamped down on. Manuel Caritza, the Leon lock, also gets a three-week ban for his um, version of that. Um, so you're seeing these things that are linked to head injury, obviously being fully clamped down on the high tackles, um, leading with the elbow. There was one for the Toulouse prop, Lucas Pointu, um, where he kind of tries to counter Rook and his, I think it's his shoulder actually makes contact with Nathan Cat, the bath props uh, head. Um, and again, any head contact, you're, you're going to be looking at a ban. I think that's a positive for rugby. We, mm. we can't survive as a sport if people are taking those kind of blows to the head. But it is going to be a massive... Um, adaptation process not only for supporters for players for coaches also for the referees in in being firm enough to go actually this is a red card these are the directives I'm working under now and I got to ban this the other one that I thought was really interesting was um, Alex Lizovsky the the Saracen Centre getting a two week ban for um, I think it's dangerous entry to the ruck it wasn't really a ruck it was almost a breakdown situation and he kind of flies in off his feet Um, I think they've set a an interesting standard for themselves now there because so many people are off their feet at rock time. Yeah, there's going to be a certain amount of rugby incidents. It's it's a, it's kind of a phrase that's been thrown around a lot at the moment that it's a contact sport. So these things are going to happen. But there's also an issue in terms of when a poacher gets in a jackal position over a ball. How do you clear him out? You know, we want to see free-flowing rugby. Um, what are you supposed to do? Um, and that's an issue for coaches, players, and but at the moment it's like, well, what can I do? You know, you have to create a momentum. He has all. He is in the strongest position he can be in in the, in in terms of physical strength. He's down. His hips are low. His uh, body's over the ball. To move someone in that position is extremely hard. The only way you can do it is by creating momentum and hitting him with your shoulder. Hitting him with your shoulder means you're going to go off your feet. So uh, how do you ref that? You're ne- then leading. There has been a shift over the last couple of years that you know we're we're positive towards attack. You take that away, we're positive towards defence. Now I, I that's a skill in itself, getting over the ball and your timing and all that kind of stuff. But how do you move someone like Peter Manny off a ball? Yeah, well I completely agree with you. I think that is the root of it. And I and for me. The Jackal has probably been given too much leeway with his hands in front of the ball before he gets onto the ball, with his knees uh, kind of leaning into to the ball carrier on the ground, not actually supporting their body weight. And it's obviously very difficult to referee in, in real time. It's very fluid. And within a split second, he can be in a brilliant position, often driven back up by that clear out that you yeah. mentioned. But for me, the, the, the onus needs to be on uh, actually refereeing the Jackal really strictly because it's an incredible skill when it's done legally. But I feel that they're probably getting away with too much how many times are, are guys hands on, uh, on the ground just yeah. in front of the ball it happens so often and as you say your only options then are to absolutely slam him in the top of his back with, with your shoulder or crock roll him which is also mm. causing a lot of injuries as well so yeah. yeah I think that's probably at the, the root cause of it but it'll be interesting to see if that Lizovsky ban kind of sets a standard and we see other guys being being pinged for that because as you say that's what players are being coached for now you, yeah. you got to kind of go off your feet if you're like going to there's, there's a kill mentality like in, yeah. and you know and, and I mean that in in 
use the term. I'm, I'm not, you know, it's a, it's a term that's used. You, that's you, a reality. It's yeah. a reality. You, you, you kill a, you know, you kill, you kill a jackal. You kill someone. You know, the whole thing on, on rooks. You've left and right, and your idea is that you kill a player. You either take him off his feet, or he's out of, out of the next phase. And that's, that's, that's been a, a coaching positive because, you know, there's an interview with James Lowe. We we'll speak about him later on. Like he, you know, he's talking about. I'm not sure. Hit on suspicion. Hit on suspicion. Yeah. So someone's around. You hit him, he's out of the game. That's a positive for you. So that's, uh, and the rook area is so vital to any game, you know, and it's said every game. Pe- the back row or the team that wins the, the the team that wins, wins the rook area will generally win the game. Mm. So you have to take a step back and look, okay, well, I can't cut off my feet, so I can't kill a player. Where do you go? You know, you'll end up at malls, end up pushing and shoving and and it's, it's a danger, and my thing is, there's such, so much good rugby all weekend. But the first thing everyone's talking about at the moment are the bans, uh, refereeing decisions. You know, we should be talking about you know the positives, and we'll get to that later on. But that's that's the issue at the moment. They're all people talk about, and that's not good for the game. That yeah. that's going to stop parents letting their kids play because you know, oh look at that, and some fella got concussed, or you know, and that's that's the issue. But it does need to be dealt with. And dealt with swiftly, I think. Yeah, speaking of bands, Nathan Hughes overnight was, uh, he's out of England's uh, first three autumn internationals after copping a six-week ban for punching. Long story, Murray, but basically, without the tweet that he sent out last week, he would have got four weeks. It's been upgraded to six. Yeah, I think he's deleted his Twitter account now, hasn't he? So yeah. there's probably a lesson in there for professional <laughs> players. I don't know why you waste your time and, and check out some of the abuse that they get on there as well. It's pretty nasty at times. Um, but yeah, it just adds to England pro- England's problems, doesn't it? A lot of injuries. And obviously the primary two, they're the Vunipola brothers. Um, Billy Vunipola, another broken arm. So unlucky. Third one in, in a year, pretty much. Um, and Mako out as well. It just changes their whole complexion for November tests. With the two of those guys, in, they're, they're a very different team because not only are they... the best ball carriers in the squad they're also probably the best ball players as well and they Mm -hmm. allow England to do uh, things in attack that they really can't um, without those two Um, so yeah it's going to be a tough autumn I think for England Yeah Yeah, I think and Nathan Hughes is kind of the direct replacement for Billy to like for like although he's not probably as destructive as as Billy is but he is the, the like for like change and you know, it's creating issues for Eddie Jones. He's going to have to change his selection policy and try and mix things around. And there's a couple of guys that are going to benefit from it. Some guys that probably should have been in there, in there from the start, or probably starting. You know, like said, Tom Armand and those guys, the Chiefs guys, and a couple of the back row guys that that a lot of the English media have been like, what do they have to do to get picked ahead? Uh, you know, ahead of certain. He's uh, left. He's actually yeah. left Armand out. They named the squad just this morning, just now, actually. Just no extra back row. I'm just mm-hmm. having a look at it there. Armin's actually out, and um, yeah, see, stuff like Cipriani's out, Haskell's out, Dan Cole's out, Kvesic yeah. is out. So it's a strange kind of selection, but it's hard to know where Jones is going to go with these things. Yeah. Um, and they're really in a difficult place now, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. And you just, yeah, you know, there's kind of history, you know, two years is excellent under Eddie Jones, and then the kind of last two kind of seem to kind of wither away. So, yeah, you know, look, selection is, uh, you know, Selection is kind of perception in a way, you know. It's it's how you're perceived by a coach, but you know, certainly someone like Don Armand, I I kind of like. What does he have to do? Cipriani, despite his stuff off the field, he is probably one of the best attacking ten, certainly in England. Um, and arguably on his day, you know, you you can put him in that world class uh, marker in yeah. terms of 
of how he how he control and just his his maverick type style of play. You know, defensively probably is the issue for him. Um, and we know at test level you just got to be able to you can't really hide anymore, can you? No. <laughs> Someone's going to find you. They're also tactically clever. Even if you're hiding in the backfield, they're going to put the ball on top of you, or they're going to run strike plays into your z- zone on second phase or whatever. So yeah, I think that's probably the the downfall for him. But interesting times ahead for yeah. England. As you say, Murray, eight uncapped players, and then he joins the squad for November two in the Welsh squad. Uh, Warren Gatland is named Jonah Holmes, who was uh, up at Belfast with Leicester Tigers last week, and Luke Morgan and Scotland's uh, coach Gregor Townsend is named three Blade Tom. And Sam Skinner, who's um, obviously the Exeter Chiefs lock, and he's representing at under twenty level. So that's an interesting one for yeah. Uh, that's kind of a trend, isn't it? Like everyone's kind of investing a lot of time into finding guys with links. We're going to talk about the Ireland squad a little bit later on, and you may see an Irish qualified guy coming in there. Um, I think because of the change of residency rule. Um, all the unions are kind of putting a bit more time and effort into this, finding guys who have links, a granny or a granddad, um, and, tr- and trying to bring them in. I think that's a good addition. And Blade Thompson, obviously, um, has been excellent for the Scarlet, so he's going to really change things up in the back row there. Very dynamic, very skillful, brilliant in the line-out. So come Six Nations time, I think he'll be a guy to, to keep an eye on. Yeah, Sam Johnson, the third uncapped player in that Scotland squad. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how uh, things change for Scotland. I, I know they've been progressing under Gregor Townsend very... Um, a kind of open style of rugby um, he's obviously a very progressive coach but yeah it'll be interesting obviously Ireland aren't playing these teams in November but it's always interesting to keep an eye on them with that uh, Grand Slam defence in, in mind Yeah I think just with the amount of time that Scotland are going to have under Gregor given it's a World Cup year you know it, it, I think there's a massive opportunity for them to to really do something you know with a, with a full summer under his his tutelage next, next year before the World Cup I think you're going to see them improve massively throughout the year um, you know I think he's one of the best coaches around and, and the amount of time that you know the international boys are going to spend under the, him this year is going to be a big thing for, for Scotland and I, I think you're probably only going to see the fruits of that probably not till for them probably not till next uh, August September but yeah certainly someone to be wary of going into into the World Cup next year but it'll take a while yeah, before we get into the first of this week's talking points, Murray, we've had a question from Stephen Elliott. Um, at which stage does the provincial identity of each province become diluted by former Leinster players moving province? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I don't think we're quite getting to the point where the identity is being diluted uh, just yet. I don't. I think no matter how much change you have in a squad, that culture is going to be part of it. Certainly in Munster, anyway. There's always going to be massive pride, Johnny. You know more than mm. more than anyone coming into that kind of environment that. It's up to you to to kind of buy into that, I guess. I think the the I I don't I don't buy into that. Now, obviously, I'm biased, <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, the identity of of an organisation is based on history and based on your buy-in. Um, you know, Leicester is is the same. You know, the, there is a certain amount of homegrown talent that's there, and that's always going to be there. There's always going to be a, ho- a certain amount of homegrown talent in Munster, but the identity is what's been there before you, and your buy-in into that. And you know, you hear the likes of Raj and all these guys speak about what he's learning down in um, in New Zealand about you know institutions and environments. That's what's created within. Every environment is different, but everyone strives to create a sense of belonging to a jersey or, you know, it's any leadership mantra is, you know, a sense of ownership and pride in in the organization you work for, regardless of where, of what industry you're in. Um, and that's the onus is on the player. You know, you, I think you look at what Joey's done over the last and, and the stuff he said publicly, you know, there's buy-in automatically, regardless of where he's from. You just have to have a connection with 
um, with the identity and the history of of an organisation to have that buy-in. And then, you know, in terms of the environment itself, that's led by players and the players lead that and you're going to have certain senior players that lead that and that's the way it is. It's a profession. Um, People change jobs all the time and that's the way it is. But you are going to have, and that's the difference in probably in the really successful clubs or the clubs that have that identity or culture. The difference to them is you're going to have players, you're going to have probably a higher percentage of players that stay there for a long, long period of time. They're not going to be in, they're not going to be out. And that's what creates a successful team. You know, you are going to have guys that leave that's professional sport. And that's the difference. You look at what, you know, what is being created under, you know, take Edinburgh, for instance. How many of them grew up in Edinburgh? I don't know. But Cockers is creating a culture based on what he knows and what he thinks is good for the identity of Edinburgh. And he has buy-in at the moment. And that shows in, in results how they have they did last year. You know, I know they started a bit so this year, but in terms of where they're going to get to. And that's what that is. And that's created across the whole, the whole thing. So I don't necessarily buy into that, but look... As I said, I'm biased. I, I I never played for my whole province, only only under twenties, but you know, I certainly have an affiliation and and somewhere to to Leicester that, you know, is you know, I'm an Irish boy, but I would consider myself a, a, a Leicester man because that's where, you know, I essentially grew up and got my was given an identity over there. Remember, you can send us your questions at Heineken Rugby Weekly at the forty two if you want to get in touch next week. So Leinster's title defence got up and running in pretty emphatic and impressive fashion last weekend against Wasps and, and I suppose the man of the match from that game and the headline act, Murray, as he as he tends to be when he's playing James Lowe. Um, you were obviously at that game, box office on and off the pitch. I'm sure many people would have seen his, his press conference afterwards where he's just as good value as he is on the pitch. He seems to be just loving life at Leinster at the moment. He's had a brilliant start to this season. Some of the stats are incredible. 16 tries and 18 games is his overall strike rate for Leinster. Some of his stats, again, from just that game in particular, 12 runs across 184 metres, four clean breaks, eight defenders beaten, two tries. You can't really get better than that. Yeah, very impressive stuff. Um, Leo Cullen's talking about he's had a kind of off-season now, having had a really long year last year. Um, and you can see in his physical condition, he, he's an incredible athlete. Like, he's so kind of densely muscled around the kind of thighs and hindquarters. <laughs> it's it's quite incredible. He's so powerful in that area. And you can see that um, through contact. He's so balanced. Even when he's like inches away from the, the touchline, he's really good at leaning in and using his fend, uh, which is a really good skill, actually. He's getting those big, strong, explosive fends. I think it's something we see in New Zealand rugby quite a bit. They work on it uh, quite intently and I, I think that's probably something that we can learn it's such an important individual skill I think to be able to actually fend off a defender buy yourself time for an offload uh, and actually beat players as well <clears throat> his kicking game is obviously um, he's got a massive left boot because of that power in his legs it can be a little bit wayward at times but because he's getting such distance on it um, it's an incredible asset for, for, for Leinster as well I think one of the things about him like on and off the pitch as you say there he's he's this positive kind of presence and it's a very contagious thing um, just yesterday I was listening to this guy Wade Gilbert talk he's kind of coaching consultant the RFU have had him in this week working with all the provinces and he's talking about um just in terms of culture, playing uh, players being kind of like a virus, like really contagious around an environment, everyone kind of feeding off of your um, habits and traits. And I think what he, what he gives is a lot of that positivity. You're seeing it like Johnny Sexton, not a guy who gets overly giddy, really, I don't think... Uh, 
on or off the pitch really but he 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 feels kind of giddy I think playing with James Lowe he's really excited about being in the same team as him he's already looking forward to 2020 when yeah. he's going to qualify for Ireland as well um, so Lowe has had a massive impact in, in quite a short space of time already um, and I think he's turning into quite a complete player even in the what was it 67th minute Leinster defending their line they're already 35-3 up and he makes a turnover hit on Juan de, de Jong I think it was a little bit high maybe but it just shows that he's buying into that side of the game as well, which is huge for Leinster. Johnny, I guess, is a back three player. He's a guy you would have probably enjoyed playing with. Yeah, I, I think, um, I just think it's his open and uh, his openness and honesty that, that that kind of shows around both on and off the pitch. It's someone that's very comfortable in his skin. And, you know, he's one of the guys that when the ball goes to him, I'm sure everyone goes, okay, what's he going to do? And regardless of what he does, they're going to back him just because he is so open. And with, with that openness comes, you know, in review meetings on a Monday or Tuesday, look, James, you probably, you know, what about this option? You go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, no, I get it. And he's going to take everything on the chain. And and I just think that, as you say, it, it's infectious and it breathes throughout the whole whole group. And I, and I think I I was going to mention the moment that, that that you just mentioned his big work on last year was probably his defensive frailties in terms of you know kind of getting caught in between the space in between players and try, whether to shoot in or, or hold off, and I think that that moment kind of shows the learnings that he's had over the last kind of uh, twelve months since since he arrived, and you know he he's discussed about his learning styles openly in the media and. I think everyone is, has kind of been refreshed by that and, and you know, I, I'm sure the coaching staff have taken that on board and obviously he's he, he's done his work and, yeah, I, I just think his, yeah, he, he's just an incredible player and someone that, that the ball goes to and the crowd sparks and that's that's only a good thing. But I do agree that those guys are infectious within the group and the reason they're so infectious is because they're kind of standard bearers in how they carry themselves, but also the work ethic. And I think you'll probably find that he's probably one because he's um, so energetic that he leads extras in the gym. He leads extras in terms of passing. He leads extras in in terms of, of everything. And he's going to be the one kind of throwing the jokes around and all that kind of stuff. So he's just obviously fantastic for an environment. But with that openness and honesty that he has, it just it's part of that culture that w- that we've already spoke about. It's only a plus in, in yeah. an environment like that. And Colin was kind of mentioning that he's been influential in terms of little kind of technical details as well. You mentioned the ruck earlier on, that kind of hit on suspicion. He's talking about, every time I go to a ruck, I want to completely rearrange it. And if your winger is bringing that mentality, that's, again, pretty infectious than everyone else. The other little cool thing he's doing is that little kind of release pick up uh, as he stands back up onto his feet and go again and you're seeing everyone try that now Jordan <laughs> yeah. Larmore everyone's learning off it um, so yeah everything he's doing is kind of influential on, on the on the players around him also I'm just really happy that he's so entertaining off the pitch as well yeah. because he's got a great attitude towards the media he doesn't think that everyone's out to get him mm. he's very relaxed very honest open he's talking about his car getting broken into his mum texting him she was annoyed his post-match interview got cut off and, and things like that just make Lencer very likeable yeah, and, and it's stuff at the moment I think that needs to be taken by by the media in a positive that you know there are a lot of guys in this day and age are you know struggle to have that openness with with the journalists and and the media in general and I think that's something that that needs to be taken into consideration if there is a slip in in something that it's not taken and uh, and not ran with when there's actually no context to it and you know he's going to do interviews 
that are very open and someone can tilt something that he says in 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 a different way taken out of context and i just think it's important that 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 everyone and in the media that they take his lead that he is being who he is and take him at that don't try and take him out of context i know it's, it hasn't happened but i, I would just just take that because that's what everyone wants. They want to sit down, they want to have a conversation and they want to read a paper and feel like they're actually in the room having a conversation with someone or, you know, being able to sit down and have a coffee with someone. That's what they want. That's what, you know, when I sit down and I read something, you know, if I read the first two paragraphs and, you know, someone's talking about, oh, well, you know, they were great and we were okay and a lot of work on, I don't read the article. I don't, you know, it's just, that's media talk, you know. Yeah. I've, you know, I've been taught how to do it, so I understand where, how where it's going to go. But when someone like him stands up and he's honest, you're like, okay, you know, like Joe Marler a couple of weeks ago, talking about his subconscious mind in terms of when he's going away with England because he didn't like, you know, he didn't enjoy the environment. He's away from his family, he's away from his kids, and he's like, you know, maybe I was trying to get banned. Mm. And then there's this whole media frenzy that, you know. Joe Marler two weeks before he goes to play for England is trying to get red cards and yeah. you're like no he was just actually being honest and actually speaking about what it means to him to be with his family and that kind of stuff and that I know now to be fair the English media are kind of different gravy to everyone else but um, <laughs> it is that you know that's that that's something that does need to be taken into consideration because that's what people want. You know they want, you know when you hear different journalists, you know you sit down and you go, oh there was a nugget in there, yeah okay we have it, and then everyone <laughs> runs with it. But yeah, there's going to be twenty nuggets when you speak to James Lowe because yeah, he's actually, so yeah. honest. That post match interview was hard to fit everything into. Yeah, and, and that's great. It's yeah. it's brilliant. You know we want more informal conversations in this you know, this PC world where people can be not just pros, that they can actually, he can be James Lowe, Robin yeah. Copeland's interview about, you know, about identity. We've all, already spoke about, you know, saying that, you know, I'm a professional. I'm really loving this environment because I didn't like Munster because of, not that he didn't like it, but I struggled with this, this and this. Um, you know, he talks about a, a goals meeting where we're going to try and win everything. And he's like, ah, oh, Jesus, lads. Like, you know, and he says that. And, that's allowed because that's his personality and you know he got a bit of flack for that and and you're kind of like well, mm, he's just being honest lads you know and and he's just being open and i think that's the more people like that the better i think in the media because it it, it creates you know it creates some good publicity about the game yeah, yeah. I totally agree one one last quick point on low is just with, with that kind of non-european rule he's obviously going to be in and out at, at times again mm -hmm. but he's being very selfless about that and it seems to be very genuine like I've never seen someone celebrate in their suit as, as <laughs> kind of vigorous as, yeah. as he did after the Champions Cup final he was bouncing around the place and he seemed to really just be happy for his teammates so mm -hmm. yeah a great guy to have in the Leinster yeah. Yeah. he used the term expendable in his post-match on Friday yeah, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far he'd be, um, he'd be he'd one of my two every single weekend I yeah. think um, especially with Nick McCarthy back now but uh, yeah just a, just a really kind of selfless individual yeah, Final word on Low Murray you mentioned 2020 there qualifies for Ireland how on earth did the All Blacks let him through well, look, if you look at the wings they have, in fairness, yeah, Rico Ioannis is not a bad left wing, <laughs> yeah, is he? He's yeah. uh, pretty prolific himself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they may have a glance at him and go, oh, we could have done a bit more with him. But at the time, I think uh, you can't blame him for taking the opportunity. Yeah. He's, he's earning more up here. He's being honest about that yeah. as well. So yeah. it's it's kind of worked out for all parties. Yeah, and I think you probably underestimate the... Um, the probably influence Isa, Isa has had on him in terms of, you know, he 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 name-checked Isa in, in the interview saying, you know, Isa texts me and he he's still watching, you know, for someone, um, 
who's probably come from a very similar background in terms of, you know, his Fiji cap and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I think he's probably had an incredible influence on, on, on Lowe since, you know, in that period of time that they worked together and worked under each other. So, you know, and he's obviously just taken up Issa's mantle since, since he's left in, the, in that way. You're very welcome back to Heineken Rugby Weekly with the 42 this week. We're joined in studio by Johnny Murphy. Moving on, lads, to, to this weekend. Another big weekend of action, round two action for the provinces. Quickly run through the fixtures. Munster taking on Gloucester at Thomond Park. Uh, Ulster in Paris to face Racine. And, of course, on Sunday, Leinster in France to face Toulouse. And in the Challenge Cup, Connacht are on the road against Sale. Murray, we're going to quickly run through each of the provinces, what they did well on the opening weekend because it was a very positive weekend and what they can kind of improve on for this weekend, I starting with Munster that draw away to Exeter last week on the face of it an excellent result for them to start the campaign yeah I thought the pack was really good um, that connection between Noel Scanlon who threw really well in, in unbelievably yeah. tough conditions uh, and Ty Byrne calling the line out he's really growing into that role uh, I don't think they went to the tail they just simple calls at the front in the middle just stepping into space and getting clean wins I, I thought they managed that particularly well defensively excellent uh, you saw Ty Byrne finally kind of getting that um, run of turnovers that he's been looking Looking for he, he's kind of starting to feed off the the, the defensive work of, of his teammates and they're putting him in good positions like the first one was a third minute CJ Sander makes a really dominant tackle uh, just giving Byrne that split second he needs um, but his skills are just incredible the second one where, where Omani kind of clamps onto him he just had it was even less than a split second to get onto that ball and somehow even without a wide base even without any, any lean into the ball he still manages to kind of ride that clear out hit so really impressive stuff there I think attacking wise they'll be slightly disappointed they didn't maybe take more of their opportunities when they got down into the 22 and we spoke about that last week that that is the big kind of work on for them um, in their game is kind of just broadening that attacking palette and being really clinical out on the edge it was very difficult to go there with that wind you couldn't even really pass into it or, or against it even um, so I think we'll see more of that against Gloucester and, and I'd expect them actually to, to win that game well Yeah a different type of game as Murray said this weekend for them Johnny you expect them to kind of unveil more of an attacking game Yeah I think you know at home they've obviously look quite comfortable in terms of um, you know their clinical edge and and their attack out wide um, I think it's probably a scary thing for other sides when they're going to come to Thoma Park and see that Tigburn you know how he's grown into his side as you already said Murray I think there was probably a bit of he didn't have the he didn't hit the ground running as uh, as, well, as well as Joey did you know there was just an automatic spark around Car- Carberry in terms of his first performance where Tig was just you know, he he wasn't playing bad, but he wasn't, as you said, wasn't getting those, you know, three four turnovers a game and and that kind of bulk. Things were just just slightly off, and that that just happens. Where now he's at a stage where after this weekend with a performance like that, he's kind of he's now and especially for Ireland, we'll talk about it later when he he's coming into that vein of form that he's had for the last two three years. You're like, okay, this is this this side is can be genuine contenders. Um, I think it's important that. They're clinical this weekend. People aren't going to mention, but you know, I would fancy Munster with the performance, with everything that they can get a bonus point. You know, a bonus point win that puts them in a fantastic spot. Mm. And you know, Gloucester are very much up and down in the in the Premiership. And I think you know they go well early. And there could be a bit of a walk out the gate factor, and I, I think it's something that that they really need to to build on with a big physical, abrasive start. 
you know, and then they have, you know, Hallie and and the guy and Joey and these guys that are going to really, you know, play play with a bit more width. And if they can get that clinical edge like they had against Ulster, um, yeah, I think they're going to be good value for 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 a bonus point win. Yeah, you mentioned Ulster there, Johnny. They got off to a winning start against your former club Leicester in Belfast last week. Completely different proposition though, Murray going away to Paris to face an informed Racing team with Zebo. It seems to be in flying form at fullback. Yeah, and they got a good good start against Scarlets away. Yeah. Uh, a really strong win for them. They've been yeah. a little bit inconsistent in the top fourteen, I know, but um, you'd expect them to be in the mix certainly when it comes down to the knockout stages again. Uh, Ulster's game against Leicester, I, I thought compared to the other provinces we were chatting yeah. before, Johnny, maybe the, the standard had, had slightly dipped off, and, and they actually made it hard work for themselves I thought the first half was quite poor they had a lot mm. of opportunities to kind of launch attacks and they couldn't even get beyond that phase it was very tricky conditions I know but I think you saw more of what they will be aiming for in the second half even the Jacob Stockdale tried it was a nice blend to that you know mm. they win the line out good maul best splinters off Ian Henderson with a kind of powerful pick and go they come around the, uh, to the left hand side and Eric O'Sullivan had a lovely pre-contact pass out the back mm. to, to John Cooney he probably actually missed the initial opportunity there to pass on but they they kind of hold their, their patience on the next phase and McCluskey makes a nice pass so there was that blend of directness which I think at times they're kind of slipping away from because they're they're aiming to get that width they're aiming to get that shape in their face play attack as well um, and I think there's probably a lesson for them in that try about um, using that skill level that they're working on i.e. that little pass from Eric O'Sullivan and, and McCloskey's skip pass but as well as being being direct and confrontational I think that's really important for them to get that blend like we talked about their chance of getting out of the pool last week and I still would stick with my kind of hesitance about them getting out there unless they can have a, a massive result away this weekend so yeah I think they're on a, a journey and they're further back than than a couple of the other provinces but um, a decent start at least Yeah, John Cooney man of the match last weekend but I think he is a doubt for this weekend another standout performer in Belfast last week was Will Addison we, we will touch on him maybe a bit later when we're, we're talking about Ireland in November but he seemed to really hit the ground running obviously coming in over the summer he seems yeah. a really good acquisition Yeah, I, I think so Like I watched that game and every time he looked he, he got the ball he nearly beat first defender he was you know he, he looked like someone that that really is going to make a difference this year and suits what they're trying to, what Dan McFarland is trying to bring in with a bit more width and and um, trying to get that structure. And I think the thing with Ulster is that they're very much, they're up and down based on, in you know, kind of who plays and, and that kind of stuff. But they're also just starting a development process that could take a couple of years to kind of get in. You know, I remember when Rob came in with us down in Munster, we were very much up and down because we were playing something completely new and I, I think they're probably on that journey but someone like Addison just gives them a bit a bit of security in that 13 channel that you know there's going to be a bit of flair there. Um, you know, I know Darren Cave has given that over the years but, you know, he's similar age profile to me now so, you know, and you can chop and change there in your centre pairing, you know, you can, you have your directness of, of McCluskey where, you know, you can put Darren now at 12 and, you know, probably play a bit more ball off him as well so they have options, they're building, building nicely. I do think it's a big, big ask for them this weekend. Um, and whatever they get, if they can get anything out of, um, you know, Paris, that'll be a be a good a good thing for them to to try and get a a pointer a pointer or two out there. But I I do think the intensity of the game, maybe it was conditions led. Uh, it did look like it was dreadful conditions, but the intensity of that game certainly was a was a drop down in comparison to some other games that played at the weekend. And that's probably going to be their big issue. They need to go up a 
a level or two over in Paris this weekend. Yeah, Leinster also in France continuing their pool one campaign on Sunday against Toulouse. Murray, the line that's kind of been coming out of UCD over recent weeks is we're not defending our title, we're attacking it. They certainly did that against Wasp, but this again is, is another step up. Yeah, I really like that mindset. Um, I think yeah. it's very easy just to go in and, and try and defend what you have, but they're constantly talking about pushing things onto another level and look that way against Wasps as you say um, some exceptional play from the forwards in particular I thought um, even if you look at Dev Toner giving that loop pass to Johnny Sexton and Furlong releasing James Lowe down the left for Luke McGrath's second try there were many other examples of that guys passing out the back door they look like a very very complete attacking uh, team I still think they will even though they scored 52 points I think they'll see a lot of scope within that performance actually to, to do mm-hmm. even more going, going back through their games like you look at it we, we went through and took account of all the times they've visited the opposition 22 this season they've had 69 visits um, and they've only taken points 36 of those times so around 50% of the time mm-hmm. they're actually taking points now you can't expect 100% obviously there's, there's always going to be errors there's always going to be good defence but I think they'll see in that um, isn't that a scary statistic it's really scary any, yeah. any team looking to come yeah. up against like, them you're just like yeah they're oh 8 out of 14 God. against Wasps they were 3 out of 3 against Munster but like look at that Dragons game eight, uh, sorry 13 visits and 8 eight times they took points 5 out of 10 against Edinburgh 4 out of 14 against Connacht still winning an, an unbelievably tight Interbro so yeah there's, there's scope there still for improvement I think the defensive side of things as well probably tends to get uh, ignored when they score 50 points but they're just taking such pride in it. We mentioned earlier on, 68th minute, you're cruising. Mm. It'd be easy for a guy to switch off in the defensive line, but they're taking such pride in that. Um, and I, I want to wait until after this weekend just to make <laughs> sure they get the two out of two before kind of stating them as the greatest side ever in Europe. But it, it does kind of look like they're going that way. It, it does look like they have this collection of individuals who are not only excellent rugby players, but are just so driven. Like everyone's the, that virus we mentioned. Yeah. Everyone's that contagious influence. There's no one switching off they, on a Monday or Tuesday. They seem to have a relentless intensity that is just can't be copied anywhere else, possibly bar Saracens at full tilt. And I think that's what everyone is hoping for, that we can get to a stage where we see both sides fully locked and loaded, having a crack off each other, and then we're going to actually... There's no debate then over who actually has that. And I just think they they have a group now that it's not about... It's weird. I think looking from the outside in, it's not necessarily about accolades or or um you know it's about they've got this balance of improvement so every week they want to improve so the end game is obviously accolades trophies all that kind of stuff but they're so obsessed with their performance and their work ons um and like you say that stat it's just so scary to think that they're only taking 50% of their opportunities and they will know that you know that's the scary thing they're going to know that and they're going to okay well you know we need to up our execution levels in green zone and you're going oh my god like <laughs> where where where, yeah. where does it go and and i just think it's it's a re- relentless pursuit of improvement that they have at the moment that is not necessarily that they don't really care about now just at this moment in time they don't really care about May or you, you know winning yeah. winning the trophy and that's a hard thing to do they're just now concentrating on improving every single week and that comes with the squad they have they have got 
20, was it 28 internationals? They had eight internationals to pick from last week. And that improvement level comes from, I'm going to be better than you, Murray, this weekend. Because if I'm better than you on Tuesday and Thursday, I might play ahead of you. But then we'll go and we'll have coffee and we'll chat like, you know, we're best of mates. And and they just seem to have, I, I, I don't know, from an outsider, it's just extremely impressive what Leo has built um, over the last couple of years. And, you know, having played with Leo and Leicester under a time where Paddy Howard tried to build something very, very similar in terms of a squad where regardless of who played a squad of maybe 40 guys, there was... There was a win in it, a win in us, and Leo has created that. And you know, with Stuart Lancaster's expertise, Felipe Contiponi adding just a a kind of a maverick touch at the moment in terms of their attacking play. That they're just, yeah, they're they're just class. Like I, I sit down to watch them pure, like just completely as a neutral. And you know, when they played Munster last weekend, I'm obviously shouting for the lads, and I'm really want them to win. But you sit back and as a pass Munster player, you sit back and you just go, God, they're good. Yeah. You know, it's just enjoyable, isn't I, it? I, I, and, and that's just, that, 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 that's where they're at. And I do think they're a different level. But I just love their sports psyche stuff that's coming out at the yeah. moment. Well, Leo's no, there's no better man than Leo. Like, he yeah. comes in after they absolutely hammer Waston and Yorkie match and he's just like straight faced. Listen, it's the first round. And he's mm-hmm. right. It is the first yeah. round. They're going yeah. to wait to lose. It's going to be a tougher game. There's no one better to be in charge of that group because he is the most grounded man. When they win, it's never too high. When they lose, it's never too low. So they're in a good place. But um, I think to lose will be a, a bit of a tougher challenge yeah. this weekend. Briefly, Murray, Connacht, you were in Galway last weekend. Connacht got up and running in the Challenge Cup as Andy Friend would say, keeping that winning momentum going. Uh, how impressed were you? Obviously, it was difficult conditions. They made a few changes, a few runouts for a couple of squad players and a couple of the academy lads as well. So it was a big day for them. Yeah, I think it was a, a positive start to their campaign and, and made some changes and got that rotation through. Interesting, yeah. again, talking to him afterwards, he's so honest, uh, spoke about the things that we've probably spoken about in this podcast around them, their discipline. They got down to eight penalties, but there was a yellow card for Robin Copeland and he immediately substituted him. He said, mm. that's not good enough. We need to set a standard. Um, he was talking about this kind of red, orange, green penalty analysis so they're going through each penalty in painstaking detail signifying the ones that could have been avoided the ones that were good opposition play and the ones that were probably refereeing mistakes so they're being really kind of analytical about that area trying to improve it also the kind of problem solving on the pitch we spoke about their tactical decision making um, and they're doing a lot of hard work on that in training kind of throwing these different scenarios at the players you know you're one man down here you have three minutes left what are you going to do trailing by by three or four points whatever um, so yeah there is clear signs of, of progress and um, while it, they're probably under the radar for these couple of weeks I think they'll get a lot out of these couple of weeks in terms of rotating that squad um, and as you say hopefully continuing the winning momentum this weekend in sale Now for this week's feature interview Murray you caught up with Mike Ross during the week Yeah a really uh, interesting chat with Mike as always he's got a new book out it's called Dark Arts out on Hero Books uh, he did it with Liam Hayes uh, definitely well worth picking up uh, we just chatted about him trying to break in in his, his native Munster going over to England obviously and also about his brother's suicide he's very honest uh, um, and open about that um, so he only turned pro at the age of 26 you know came through for Moy and UCC Cork Con obviously so just kind of started off by asking him when uh, professional rugby became a realistic game I suppose uh, back in the back in when I was playing AIL often you would come up against professional players you know from time to time and I often did quite well in that environment and I was also training with Munster a bit in the spring of 2006 and 
didn't find myself out of place. So I thought, well, you know, this is, there's an opportunity here. It's just I need an opportunity somewhere because, uh, like Monster at the time, you know, they're like Man United or um, Real Madrid in terms of in the rugby terms, you know. So um, they had John Hayes and Tony Buckley in situ. So there probably was an opportunity there, but that doesn't mean I couldn't play somewhere else. Yeah, like going to Harlequins, obviously Irish guys have gone abroad and stuff, but the pathway probably wasn't as clear as it is now in terms of guys go away. If they do well, they come back. When you left, was that the aim or were you just going to, to take your opportunity? Just see what happens. You know, uh, I was over there initially in a three-month contract, so my focus didn't really go beyond getting a, a full-year contract and then getting another contract after that. So I, I suppose... The way way it was set up and and it still is to a certain degree that it's much harder to play for Ireland if you're over in England because there's rules around player release and the rest. But um, I I at one at the time when I went over it was I had nothing beyond, in my mind beyond let's see if I can become a professional rugby player. Yeah, and what was Premiership like? What was it like adapting to that? Was it very different? Like you'd played AL, which is tough scrummaging. Yeah. You had that experience as Munster, as you say. Was it a school of hard knocks learning over there? Or did you feel very ready for it? Oh, absolutely. No, um, first preseason was, I got crucified, you know, because my first professional preseason, I probably lost about 15 kg wow. over the course of it. No, it was great. But um, plus, you know, I, I my conditioning in the gym wasn't where I needed to be. I, I had a lot of work and catching up to do. Uh, a lot of guys have been lifting weights since they were 18 years old. I'd been lifting weights about a year or two. And so I had quite a, my gym age needed to catch up rapidly yeah and who were the like influences on you coming through I guess to get to get to that point you, you obviously work with a lot of coaches through AL and, and even from Moy back in the day but yeah. who were the guys who maybe drove you on towards well like, I, I, like a very good underage coach Jerry O'Donoghue uh, who's sadly no longer with us and um, he kind of gave me a love of the game and he like all the kids loved him I mean he just looked after you and we were pretty successful under him too we won some championships and that kind of gave me you know the initial love of the game and then when I went to UCC I had some great coaches like Brian Highland and Peter Melia um, and then Cork Con, I had Christy Cantlin, David Corkery, Brian Walsh you know so there, there were some really good coaches along the way to help me take my game to the next level. Yeah you moved back obviously in 2009 to Leinster when did that start coming into the picture for you? Were you were you thinking now I want to get home? I've established myself at Quinns, or did it pop up out of nowhere? How did that whole move come about? Well, I was actually quite happy at Quinns. I was having the time of my life. You know, I loved every minute of it over there. And I suppose when Leinster came calling, it, they weren't they weren't my home province. So, and they had you know uh, CJ Vanderland and San Wright in situ at the time. So I was kind of wondering, well. How how am I how am I going to fit in here? And um, at the same time, I was I, I wanted to get in the Irish squads. I was getting picked for some Irish squads. I played a lot of Ireland A, so I was in the tour two thousand seven two thousand eight um, on tour with the Churchill Cup or the Churchill Stag as the yeah. lads would call it. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, uh, but there were yeah there's there's always difficulties about being released for training camps and often the training camp would commence the week before your release window so you're missing out yeah so and i knew the 2011 world cup was coming up and i was thinking well maybe if i go back in 2010 to say a claim but i wasn't anticipating go back in 2009 so when it, when it did came up um 
I was humming and hawing, but Leinster had a good offer and I made a bit of a leap of faith and went across. Yeah, and I guess the rest is kind of history in a way, winning so much. Joe wrote the forward, Joe Schmidt yeah. wrote the forward yeah. for this book. Obviously a, a big person in your career. How much of an influence was he on, on how you continued to develop as a player? Massive, massive. I suppose Joe's a guy who will look at you and look at your strengths and look at your weaknesses and look how to magnify your strengths and minimise your weaknesses and he, he puts you as part of a team, you know, so... Well, mate, Rossi, maybe he's not—he's not the fastest, but you know what? There's plenty of lads who are fast, so we can work on my my strengths, which were scrummaging and um, hitting rocks in that regard. So, Joe Joe often develops a team that's kind of more than some of its parts. Yeah, a demanding personality yeah. was he <laughs> very tough demanding, to work yeah. at times. Uh, look, he is, but once you realise what he expects, and then he's consistent with what he does, so you can't really ask for much more than a coach you know I mean you knew if you if you miss, messed up a play that he was coming for you right it was almost like when I was playing the last few years it was like I had like a little Joe Schmidt on my right shoulder you know <laughs> yelling at me you know mentally so if I if I miss, messed up a clear out I could hear him yelling at me I go like that's gonna be on the video or I missed tackle that's gonna be on the video so yeah. it's, it's just kind of like your little conscience whispering in your ear yeah that's nice. Yelling, I nice to have there at times like obviously you're renowned as, as one of the greatest scrum technicians we've had like where did your love of it develop and, and, and especially your technical expertise where did that start to come from in, in terms of getting those angles getting those little technical details that make such a difference at scrum time I suppose um, it was something I was good at you know and I, I found it was a point of difference that there wasn't a huge amount of strong scrum technicians in Ireland at the time and then when I went over to England it was such a huge focus of the game that I really put a lot of work into it because if I wasn't good at scrummaging I wasn't going to get picked yeah you know so and I suppose from that then you start figuring out well what makes a good scrummager and what do I need to do and you know what can I pick up from watching video about other people I mean is there an advantage that I can see there or can I pick up on weaknesses and make the use of, make use of them? And like from that point of view, England was a really good proving ground and really focused on set piece focused. So that was something that suited me down to the ground. Yeah, like who were the guys you what like self self professed scrum nerd? I guess yeah. who were the guys that you you studied video of? Who were the inspirations? Well, I, I watched a lot of Paul Wallace. Okay. You know, early on when yeah, I was coming yeah. up, and then when I got to Premiership, I'd watch, for instance, um, what's his name, Kobus Fasagi. Oh yeah, he was a very good scrum technician. Pierre de Villiers was a, would have been exceptional. Uh, just it was, it was a bit different when I started out because there's a crouch, crouch and hold, engage. You know, so you can launch each other at, and then they ground, crouch, touch, pause, engage, and then they crouch, bind, set. So I went through you know three or four different phases of. The scrum calls and cadence and each time they change the scrum call you got a little bit closer and the hit the hit reduced yeah because i mean went back when i was starting out i mean you just launch each other from about three or four feet yeah, away it's mad looking at those videos yeah. now <laughs> yeah and uh i don't know i i, I read about old timers harkening back to the glory days of the 80s and 70s i watched i watched <laughs> those man they they, they they ran at each other you know I, there was nothing too pretty about that <laughs> yeah. I don't know why they're pining for it. <laughs> yeah. It's it has changed so much. But yeah. even in recent years, like I was wondering what you thought of 
how the tight head role has changed. Like you look at Tig now and he can pretty much do everything. Yeah. Do you feel there's still a role for a scrum specialist or does the tight head now across the course of your career has it changed so much that you have to be the ball player now? Yeah, you have to be. I mean, like, but, you know, it's the, I suppose, the population of people who can scrummage, run and pass and do everything that Tig does is very narrow, but there's a slightly bigger subset of people who can scrummage. You know, so, I mean, some props mightn't have Tig's all-court game but they can still do very well for themselves. But they're not going to be world class, but they're still going to be international class or they're still going to be, you know, uh, premiership or pro, pro 14 class. So, I mean, it, there is more pressure on the props at the very top of the game to be all singing, all dancing. But, you know, there's I think there's still a, a space there for the pure scrummager. Yeah. Who is the toughest opponent you ever had at scrum time? Uh, toss up between Andrew Sheridan or Tende Matuera. Because of just sheer strength. strength, sheer strength. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like with Sheridan, it's like you know, you have to be lucky every time. <laughs> so yeah. he just needs to get lucky once. So because that, like the strength of the man is phenomenal, and you know, it's same with the beast. He, he just he's, he's like being up against a hydraulic car press. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, real strong. Yeah. One of the things about the book, obviously, it's not just about rugby. Um, I watched your late, late interview with great interest. It was really affecting um, you speaking about your brother's suicide. And obviously, you probably don't go into a rugby book expecting that, but it's probably one of the most powerful parts of it. Was it? Was it? You mentioned cathartic there. Was that part of it? Was it a very difficult process to, yeah, to put that in a book? Yeah, it was. I mean, like, that chapter probably was the hardest thing I've done, you know, in the book. And But at the same time, I couldn't leave it out. Yeah. You know, so I couldn't write write a story about myself without including that. And it, yeah, it was really tough. I mean, I I I read it and then I sent it down to my mother for approval because obviously like that wasn't going out unless she was happy with it. And it was tough. I didn't want to dress up you know what had happened. I didn't want to, you know, gloss over for sugar coated. I just wanted to present it as it was. Yeah. Because there's no point like I think people we read it have to realize you know, there's an ugly reality to it and there's no point in glossing over it because you know i mean if anyone who's been affected by it will certainly know about it yeah well it is very honest i mean even you talk about your reaction was go, go out and do the chores in the farm yeah. I, I think people who've been through it can probably re- relate to that yeah did you feel it was important that or have you had a lot of feedback i guess since that late late interview yeah you'd be like it's it's a silent epidemic you know, I'd be you'd be amazed at how many people have reached out to me since that with similar stories or similar experiences, and I suppose the important thing is you know to realize it's a, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Um, that once once you start down that road, you, there's not you're not coming back from that. You know, there's no second chances, and like I mentioned, late late, I mean, there there was this campaign for gay youth in America called It Gets Better. You know, because there's there's a high rate of suicide among them mm. because they felt trapped and you know maybe they're in small town America and they didn't think that they're ever going to get out of there. But you know that that message that it gets better that what you're going through, you know, it's not forever. But if if you do go down the road of suicide, well, that is forever, mm. and you're kind of you're cutting off so much of your potential and what you could be. You know, like I talking late late, would I have? You know, another gang of nieces and nephews right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, or would would my brother Andrew have played for Ireland? Because he was talented. He's a talented rugby player, and he okay. was stubborn and he was strong. And 
I think he would have had all the capabilities of doing that, you know? So it's just like, think of all the potential that's been wasted. Yeah, very true. Very true. Well, well done for speaking about him. I'm sure it, made, it makes him proud as well. Um, you, you've obviously moved on from rugby now and, and you're working with Zuda in the kind of commercial director role. Very different uh, job, I guess. Has it been easy to to transition away from rugby into that or has it, has it involved that kind of process that a lot of guys talk there, about? There's a, there's a bit of a getting used to it and figuring out and finding your feet in it, I suppose. I went straight into it, um, didn't really take any time off, but I, I really enjoy it. Um, they're a very good company to work for and it's, 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 it's a different role, but at the same time, I every day is different. You know, I'm meeting different people and out and about, and I like I didn't really want to be stuck behind a desk all day, and I certainly don't have that. And you know, I certainly quite enjoy it. Yeah, and you are obviously still involved in rugby with the Ireland women scrum coaching job. Are you still player coaching in Malahide? So you no, that for a while. No, I've, I've done. I think I'm pretty much done with that. <laughs> okay. Well, you, I, I think I find that if you're not doing it every day like I was professional, then you just hurt a lot more. Yeah. And I was waking up on Sunday morning going, why did I do that? So I think I'll just stick to the charity game. But I still coach, you know, I still do scrum coaching for them. And like you said, mentioned the women. Yeah, so, are you enjoying that? Yeah, that very, very much so. Very much. They're a great bunch to work with. Um, really thirsty for knowledge and, um, you know, some like really good talent coming through this year. So, you know, there's there's, there's a lot of player, been a lot of player turnover the last few years and We've got a good mixture now of old heads and new faces, so I'm quite excited about what's going to come up in November internationals and in, on into the Six Nations. Yeah, definitely exciting times. Listen, thanks very much for t- talking to us. Best luck with the book. It's Dark Arts. It's out on Hero Books now. Uh, Mike, thanks a million. Thanks very much. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed by Mike, or if you need to talk, help is available. Contact the Samaritans on 116 123 or Pieta House on 1800 247 247. You're very welcome back to Heineken Rugby Weekly with the 42. Now next week, by the time we come to you, Joe Schmidt will have unveiled his squad for the November Internationals. Murray, this kind of weekend is the last kind of chance for for players to put their final hand up. Joe Schmidt expected to announce his squad next, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday. In a World Cup year, though, he'll have many of the positions kind of nailed on. So where do you kind of see the decisions that he has to make maybe this weekend or the next few days? Yeah, I think there's probably been competition in every area of the pitch, which is a really positive place to be in. Um, He's probably going to name a very similar squad to what toured Australia. As you Mm. say, he's done most of his experimenting, you know, 35 new caps since the last World Cup. So he's definitely built that depth. And if you look at some of those guys, the likes of CJ Sander, Bundiaki, James Ryan, Dan Levy, Larmer, some of those guys who have come through in this cycle are now really important squad members or or pushing very hard or even starting in in the the first choice selection. So he's done a lot of the hard work and I think this year is going to be about building that cohesion, more confidence. And there is still a bit of scope. We mentioned Will Addison earlier on. Mm. I'd be very surprised if he's not in the squad. Yeah, Schmidt's been a fan of him for several years. I, I think they've been in contact uh, for quite a long time and, and even the fact that um, he comes back now, I, I think that was a kind of long-term project. Um, he was in Australia uh, training with them. Mm. He was conveniently on holidays <laughs> over there um, visiting his sister, I think, and, and comes in for a week, trains there. He's in the camp in August as well. So he's up to speed. The versatility is really important. He, he's playing 13. Obviously, last weekend he was playing 13, but he can play on the wing. He's at fullback. Uh, he was impressive at fullback at the start of the season as well. So 
I think if you're only taking 31 players to a World Cup, that's a really yeah. um, enticing aspect of it. As well as that, he just has all that little detail. You know, look at his fight on the ground, the, the kind of body ball that Schmidt works on a lot and is so key in the game. He's brilliant at it. There's so much fight on the ground there. There's always an extra little role, um, you know, avoiding that turnover. His his passing is good. His footwork is obviously excellent. Uh, defensively quite sound, good in the air. So for me, he probably has it all. And and the fact that he's 26, he's experienced. It's not like you're bringing in a kid. He's been a club captain in the Premiership um, and has amassed quite a bit of experience. So I'd be surprised if he wasn't in there. Otherwise, I think you're probably looking at guys like Ross Byrne, who who wasn't captain in Australia, obviously very unlucky, getting a bit of experience into them, into Larmour, a bit more experience, Andrew Porter. Uh, I think you mentioned Ty Byrne earlier on, who only has two caps, which is (laughs) kind of weird to think, considering how how effective he's been in the Champions Cup and, and so on. So... I think it's probably about getting those guys another kind of tier of international exposure. Yeah, I think it's trying to develop um, probably a sense of de- a more depth, um, probably at halfback area. And obviously with Murray's injury, gives him an opportunity. Uh, you know, Luke McGrath, I've been so impressed with Luke McGrath. His, his tracking lines are incredible. Um, his attacking tracking lines are, and you see them for any break that James Lowe makes. You see his, you know, he runs his forty-five if he's at a, um, you know, a rook on the far side, knowing that the ball is going to go. He just has a pre, he has a sense of where the ball is going to be and how he can get an offload. He's not just there to distribute at at the next rook. He's there first of all to try and get an offload, and then he's there. His tracking lines are incredible. Obviously, John Cooney, you know, his form speaks for itself at the moment. Um, you know, Keir Marmion's going to be be in the mix, and it just gives it, it gives them an opportunity to develop two more underneath Murray over the next kind of three four weeks, and uh, and I think it's important that um, probably you know you might see a situation where Ross probably starts one game, possibly the one in the US, um, and then Johnny gets two and Joey gets one, and then they've kind of hit a nice balance that everyone has had some some kind of game time. You would like to think that Ross Byrne um, probably at the moment might be possibly third choice 10. He might have jumped Keats possibly just given game time. Um, and then they... they you know, but you would want him probably having definitely at least one, possibly two caps coming into the, you know, the pre-tests before um, pre-World Cup tests. Um, so it, I, I think the this four-week block gives them an opportunity to develop small but more depth around um, around halfback. That would be my um, my thing. I think where they need to build on. Like there's so many different. Like the back row now is very yeah. difficult to choose. Like. Josh van der Fleer has come back like an absolute machine. He's in mm. incredible form. Tell me O'Donnell's come back really impressively. Yeah. Reese Roddick, obviously, vice captain in Leinster and, and standing out there. So that's going to be a tricky one to pick. Sean O'Brien, of course, now back. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Jeez, there's so many options. I'm forgetting them here. Um, second row as well, like Ulton Delan and Quinn Rue playing really good stuff down in Connacht and, and kind of asking questions there as well. So Joe Schmidt has a lot of good options. I think there's guys putting their hand up even who are probably just a little bit late. You know, you look at Sean O'Brien even down in Connacht, Stuart McCloskey's playing brilliant stuff up again in Ulster. Um, there's a lot of guys like that now, uh, kind of the next tier and probably going to have to wait until the next World Cup cycle. But um, yeah, it's a very exciting time and injuries to a large extent, apart from Conor Murray, have been avoided so far. So I think Ireland are going to be a really good place in November. Yeah, just finally on the Ireland squad, uh, Johnny touched on it there that the first game up is, is Italy in Chicago. That's a good opportunity for Schmidt to kind of, as you say, give the likes of Ross Byrne a bit of game time, maybe 
likes of Johnny Sexton, Peter Manny, given a bit of rest after a busy few weeks for them. Yeah, that's the sense, all right, at the moment that guys like Johnny will be kind of staying at home and there'll be a mixture of those kind of frontliners and the guys who have been pushing to get into that first 15. Um, I think that's a good chance to, uh, again, give them a little bit of exposure at, at test level. So, yeah, you'll probably see a mix there and then go f- full out for those two tests in the middle and USA gives you a bit more scope. A disappointing to see AJ McGinty yeah. pick up an injury uh, so he won't get his chance to return. But a couple of Irish guys, uh, Dylan Fawcett, John Quill and Paul Mullen in, in that USA mm-hmm. squad. So that'll be of interest. Yeah, and Greg McWilliams as well, assistant coach. Doing a great job yeah. over there, yeah. Uh, he was obviously with the Ireland women at that um, 2014 uh, World Cup. Um, so, yeah, he's doing a really good job over there. Um, and it's always good to see Irish guys going away and, and doing a good job. You're listening to Heineken Rugby Weekly with the 42. Now, before we go, guys, um, quick look ahead to the action this weekend. We, we've touched on it in a bit more detail um, during the show. But Murray, maybe just, you're as we said, you're off to France. Um, Ulster on Saturday and Leinster on Sunday. Starting, I suppose, with, with Ulster and Paris. How do you think that one's going to go? It's a tough ask for them, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it is a little bit too tough at this stage of their development. I think Racing at home um, in, in that pretty cool stadium they have in Paris. Uh, yeah, I'm going to back them for a win in that game. Yeah, Johnny? Yeah, same. Hopefully, uh, Ulster can get some kind of point, uh, get something out of the game. I think that would put them in a good spot after two games. Yeah, Munster first in action on Saturday against Gloucester at Thelman Park. They're, as we touched on, their home form has been pretty impressive this season. Home win there. Yeah, I think they're really buoyed by that performance as well in Exeter. Um, there was a, kip, a couple of kind of little Freudian slips during the press conference. There was a couple of guys calling it a victory by accident, then then <laughs> correcting themselves. So they're in a happy place, um, and I think. As Johnny mentioned, Byrne and, and Carberry growing all the time as influences. So yeah, I'd, I'd expect a, a strong win in that game. You said bonus pointer yeah, in the show. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think they'll be in a position kind of last 30 to really kick on. The crowd kind of get in behind them and and push them through for that fourth try, I think. Yeah, can Lancer make it two from two? Yeah, I think they can. I, I don't know if it's going to be 50 points again this week. Um, to lose of progressed quite a bit in the last uh, year or so uh, a lot of kind of young players coming through in that squad and um, while I don't think it will be as uh, straightforward a victory I, I do expect Leinster to kind of double down Yeah four time champions to lose Yeah I think uh, I think that's that's one for Leinster I don't think uh, to kind of reiterate what Murray said I, I don't think it's going to be the kind of free flowing stuff they you know they're going to change kind of tact and, and away from home but I I do think I I'd fancy him doing that between nine to twelve to be honest yeah is that is that kind of a, a big game for Leinster obviously going away to France is always difficult is that kind of a significant kind of juncture in this campaign I know it's only the second game but going away to four times champions to lose and getting come away would it be a big statement yeah it would I I think they got over that hurdle last year they went to Montpellier mm. um with a couple of changes mm. to the team and and played well and and got a good win there so I don't think there's much um, there's, it's not a daunting task for yeah. them going away there as Johnny mentioned it's it's just them trying to get better and do little mm. things they didn't weren't happy with last week better again I think yeah. on the head to head it's really important that they it, you know they can really put Toulouse on the back foot after Toulouse winning in Bath last week um, I really think that if they do get the victory over there then it puts them up really to kind of be top seeds in that group um, which I fancied them to do but yeah just as the head to head after round one it really does this, this game is vital in terms of the context of of where they're going to get to with Toulouse getting an away victory last weekend yeah and finally how do you see Connacht going in sale tricky one to call um, I would imagine sale might get the win there um, but I think 
another developed performance from Conoco would be good enough. I don't think the Challenge Cup is a, a major priority mm. for them. To, Pro 14, I think they've been honest enough about that, is the, is the priority and should be. But I think a development of those things, the discipline and that kind of tactical decision making would be really good to see. Yeah, good chance for a couple of the squad players to again impress. Yeah, I, I think it was really good. We get, you know, Bordeaux came to play last weekend and I think it was in terms of their selection, you know, they were really going. You know, Joe, Joe Worsley was quite animated on the sideline uh, towards the end of the game. Um, so I think it's it's it was a good win, especially with the rotation that they had. Expect another small bit of rotation, so it'd be you know good opportunity away from home f- from them. Say will probably just just nick it, but in terms of the overall squad development, a really good opportunity for for them to develop even further. Yeah, another exciting weekend in store. That's all for this week's Heineken Rugby Weekly with the Forty Two. If you want to get more from the game, join Heineken Rugby Club, whose members enjoy exclusive awards like match tickets and more. Visit HeinekenRugbyClub.com. Over eighteens only. Enjoy Heineken responsibly and visit DrinkAware.ie. Murray, enjoy your trip to France thanks Ryan Johnny thanks for joining us cheers thanks for having me lads enjoy the rugby and see you next week